Hey everyone and welcome back to The Leadership Project with your host Mick Spears. We bring you thought-provoking guests and topics every week to challenge your thinking about leadership. Our aim is to help you become the leader that you wish you always had as we learn together and lead together. Hey everyone and welcome back to The Leadership Project. We have a very special guest with us today and I've been excited about this interview for a long time now. We are joined by Dr. John Demartini. You may recognize his name as he's been involved in the movie called The Secret uh, several years ago about manifestation, about life mastery and how you can create an amazing life of your own. He's also an international best-selling author of more than 40 books, been translated into more than 39 languages and regularly a keynote speaker on international stages. So we're talking here about someone who is a leading expert in human behavior and I'm very excited to have the discussion today. To give you a little bit of an idea of where we're going to go with this, we are going to talk about manifestation. We're going to talk about mastery to get the basics of it, but I want to get towards what it means for team leadership. How do you manifest your own journey as a high performance team? So Dr. John, without any further ado, I'd love to hear from you about your background and what led you to be, I'm going to say borderline obsessed with this concept around personal mastery and manifestation, etc. How did you land in this world? Well, I'll give you my shortest version I can. I was challenged as a child with learning challenges. I was told in first grade I would probably never be able to read, write, communicate effectively, probably never amount to anything or go very far in life. And I did have dyslexia and a speech impediment. I was going to a speech pathologist from age one half. And I did have difficulty learning how to read and spell and properly write, put meaning to words and stuff. That wasn't until I was 18 before I could actually do that, really read a book. So I had that. Then I left home at a young age. I was a street kid at age 13 and made my way to first to California and to Mexico and then over to Hawaii to go surfing because I could stand on a surfboard. I nearly died at 17 on the North Shore of Oahu as a surfer. And I was led to a little health food store and then eventually a yoga class in the recovery. And that yoga class, there was a special guest speaker named Paul C. Bragg. And one night, one hour, this one man with one message really got to me and said things that made me think that maybe I could overcome my learning problems and someday become intelligent. So that night I had a vision, a dream, and I saw a vision in my mind in this meditation he guided us through. And I had a dream to become a teacher and travel the world and uh, learn how to write and read. And I can say that changed my life. I'm going to pull up a picture here to show you the vision that I saw, if I can find it here. A vision that I saw when I was 17 years old, just about 18, of me standing in front of a million people. It got painted by a gentleman standing in front of a million people with a giant square and with a iconic building from every major city around the world. That was the dream. So that was painted by Andrew Tischler, and that sits in my office as a reminder of the dream and vision I had when I was 17. And I've been blessed now to speak in 193 countries. Wow. That's almost as many as FIFA in the United Nations. So that, that's incredible, John. So that's changed your life. What then transpires that makes you want to, like that vision that you've had and this running into this person that was able to help you overcome your learning difficulties and see a path forward for yourself. Tell us about the story of how that leads to you helping others to do the same now. 
Well, my dream was to do what this gentleman did for me with as many people as I could. So I got inspired that night and I knew I wanted to be learn and learn how to read and be able to pronounce and speak and to travel and teach. I knew that that night. It was very clear. And I started to uh, try to go back to school. I failed at first, but then I ended up, I got 27 on a test. I needed 72 to pass. And I ended up finding that I'd really distraught. And I, my mom came home from shopping, saw me crying on the floor. And she said, what happened, son? I said, I, I failed the test. I guess I don't have what it takes. I guess I'll never read, write, or communicate, never mount a thing, never go very far in life. Like the teacher said, my mom didn't know what to say. She just was quiet. And finally, she put her hand on my shoulder and she said, son, whether you become a great teacher and travel the world like you say you want to do, whether you return to Hawaii and ride big waves, which you've done, or return to the streets, I just want to let you know that your father and I are going to love you no matter what you do. We just love you. She said that perfect thing at that right moment. And when she said that, my hand went into a fist and I looked up and I saw that vision I just showed you in my mind. And I said to myself, I want to mask this thing called reading. I'm going to mask this thing called teaching. And I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to travel whatever distance. I'm going to pay whatever price to give my service and love across this planet. I'm not going to let any human being stop me, not even myself. And I went and hugged my mom. I went to my room and I got a dictionary out and I started memorizing 30 words a day. I would write it that word in a sentence, made sure I understood the meaning because I would write the meaning and the description in a sentence. I would recite it 20 times a day and write it 20 times a day. And I would do 30 words a day doing that. And my vocabulary was growing 30 words a day. My mom would test me on it until eventually over the next couple of years, I had 20,000 words and I was now excelling in school. It was amazing. If you really put your focus on effort into it, you can turn things around. And I didn't know I could do that. I didn't think I could do it. I was told I would never be able to do it. But I was so determined that day when I failed that I didn't want to do that. I wanted to travel the world and teach. And slowly but surely, people started coming up to me and asking me them to tutor them or, you know, what, what, what did you have to say about this? What did you get out of your reading or whatever? And I started gathering students. By the time I went on to the University of Houston, I started having 100, 125, 150, sometimes 400 people every day under the trees gathered. And we'd have, I'd have a presentation and do questions and answers. And if it rained, we went into the cafeteria and we just, I started having students. By the time I went on professional school, I was teaching seven days a week. And when I got out of school, I was taught to grow my practice and it just never stopped. I just made a commitment to use every possible vehicle. I started in television and radio. I started writing books. I started doing whatever vehicle there was to get a message out. I started using every possible way. Once I started writing articles, magazines, newspaper, every possible vehicle I do. I still to this day use every vehicle. So congratulations on your success in overcoming all of that. And and by any societal measure, you are an extraordinarily successful individual now. And I'll use that word for a moment. You have manifested that. I would like to jump back a little bit because something very curious popped into my mind as you were talking. A lot of the people that listen to the show, yes, they're leaders. Yes, they're interested in their own personal development. They're also parents. And I'm going to put a bet out there that a number of them may have children themselves that have learning challenges. If they do, do you have any messages for them to parents out there that might have a young John Martini themselves in their family about your story and the role of your parents and how you came through that? Well, before I answer that, I'm going to share a story. When my daughter, who's my oldest, was in first grade, exactly the same class, exactly the same age and class that I was told I would never be able to read, write, communicate. For some reason, normally my wife would go to the school and meet with the teachers because I'd be at work. But this particular day, I was able to do it. And the teacher sat me down just like I had the teacher sat me down with my, in front of my parents. They did the same thing with my daughter and said, she's got learning problems. And I just couldn't help. 
help but chuckle on how that tra- transformed my life. The very thing I was told I'd never do, I'd excelled at it. And I was chuckling. And the teacher thought I was, he didn't care. Well, you know, I'm trying to tell you, your child's having a And I'm thinking in my mind, my daughter's on her way to being a scholar. And the teacher didn't understand me when I was doing that. She thought I just didn't care, but I just couldn't get it. I was just thinking of the irony of this, that this is all happening. My daughter now teaches with me and is incredibly intelligent. I'm just, just, I laugh because the teacher thought I was just absolutely an uncaring father that I didn't really care that what she was saying. I was just going, man, you have no idea. I want to give you a hug by saying that. Yeah, that's a catalyst for your daughter like you had the many years before. So yeah, and uh, yeah, I can imagine the teacher's reactions when you're doing that. So yes, what is the role of the support system around someone that decides that, okay, I'm going to address in this case a learning challenge, but we'll talk about other manifestations later. Tell us about that support system as a parent. Well, I immediately told my daughter, I said, this is irony. And I told her again, the story of what happened to me. And I said, this is not a terrible thing, Elena. This could be the catalyst of your life. And But you love reading and you love learning. It's just not some of the classes you're taking. <laughs> They're kind of boring. I said, so you don't have a learning problem. You don't have a reading problem. You just have an interest somewhere else. And so don't let other people's labels interfere with you or your dream. And I told her that immediately. And I said, so let's find out how the classes you're taking. Let's find out how they're helping you do what you really want to do. And if you can see them on the way, not in the way, you'll be more engaged and you'll easily be able to get through the classes and take the tests and all that. Because when children don't see how what their classes are doing is helping them fulfill what's meaningful to them, they're disengaged. But if we can show them and help them see that connection and train them on how to do that for all their classes, they can excel and just sit through school very simply. And I've seen thousands. I took in South Africa, we were at a Alexandra township and there was a, they had 800 students that I had the opportunity to speak speak with and, and train there and the teachers. And we took a 27% pass rate for matric in this extremely impoverished township. And in one year, it brought it to 97%, 70, 70% difference by finding out what the values of the teachers were and linking the classes they were teaching to the values of the teacher, finding out the values of the students were, what was most important to them in their life and not dishonoring it, but honoring it and finding out how the classes would help them do that, making links in their brain, which took four hours for the teachers, four hours for the students, and four hours on how to communicate teachers' values in terms of student values. So there's not an autocracy and a dissent look on the children, but an honoring of their unique genius. And in 12 hours, four hours, four hours, four hours, went from 27 to 97% at the end of the year because we got them engaged, 800 kids. And it was really amazing to watch. So labels don't mean much to me because that just means the individual doesn't know how to handle the situation. When they know how to handle the situation, and help people become inspired to learn in the things that they are, you know, really value. Kids excel. They want to learn. Every child wants to learn. Every adult wants to learn. They just want to learn what's meaningful and important to them, their own priorities and values. And so if we don't make the link between what they're told to learn and what they would love to learn, they disengage and they can be re-engaged by making the links. And that's one of my specialties. There's a number of really powerful things jumping into my mind, John, and forgive me for a moment. I want to go on a bit of a journey and share with you what I'm thinking. So the word engage, and I think these words are going to pervade throughout our discussion, by the way, but the words engagement, interest, and values are the three words that jumped out when you were speaking. And I got to think about things like Einstein's famous quote that if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it'll go around its life forever thinking it's stupid, right? So that's one. And then I start thinking, 
talking about my school experience, but I'm going to put the challenge out there to the audience and say everyone's school experience. Wasn't it amazing how there was that one teacher? And I, I challenge you to think about it now. I bet you everyone can think of that one teacher that inspired you, that engaged you, that interests you, and how you somehow excelled in that topic or in that subject where other subjects you might not have. And I'm going to then challenge you to think about your entire life. And when you know that you followed something because you are passionate about it, wasn't it funny how success seemed to kind of follow? So you might not have been good at something else that you really weren't that interested about, but when you are passionate about it, when you were deeply interested and it was aligned to your values, which I know we'll definitely keep on talking about, all of a sudden you start getting good at it and you get into these kind of confidence, competence kind of cycles because you're passionate about it. That was my takeaway there, John. How does that sit with you? Perfectly. It's right on the money. Except I, I do change the word passion to an inspired mission. The word passion, if you go look up the etymology of passion, it comes from the word pati, Latin, or passio, which means to suffer. So even though people are using the word passion around, they don't, I don't know though they realize that the word passion means to suffer and compassion means to suffer with somebody. So I prefer not to use that word. I prefer to use an inspired mission and being engaged in what they value most, where they have spontaneous action and yearning to want to engulf it. So that's that's the, the only word difference is that. But I'm, I'm helping people. I help people find what they spontaneously are inspired to do that they can't wait to get up in the morning and engage in doing and link the classes or whatever they want to learn to that. And they excel. It's just amazing watching it. It's, it's a science. You can duplicate it. You can create it and guarantee a result. It's very simple to getting people engaged. It's not that difficult. I do it in businesses. I do it in schools. It's very simple. So a lot of people are going to be listening to those words, inspired mission, and it really resonated with me, John, to be clear, but some may be listening in the audience and going, oh, well, that's very good for John. That's very good for Mick. That's very good for these people that are able to find it. But what if someone hasn't stumbled across it yet in their life? How do they find it, John? Well, that's one of the things that I worked on about age 23 and I'm 69 almost now. So it's been a while, but I, I found out, you know, I asked myself at 23, why is it some people walking their talk and some people limping their life? Why are some people doing what they say and people not? And I wanted to know what was the distinctions. And that led me down a little rabbit hole into the field of axiology, which was a study of value and worth. And then I realized in the exploration of that field that every human being lives by a set of priorities, a set of values that are unique to them that are fingerprint specific to them based on the voids that they are perceiving in their life from their experiences. And so whatever they think is missing in their life, they want to fill. So if they think they had no father, they look for a father figure. If they, look, they didn't feel like they had wealth, they look for wealth. Many times people come from poverty, go on to become very wealthy. So identifying what the value hierarchy is of that individual, in my opinion, is one of the most crucial initiating points to help people do something extraordinary with their life, to find that mission. I've also found that the very top of that value Aristotle called the telos, the end in mind, the ultimate aim, the primary objective, the chief aim, as Napoleon Hill would call it. And identifying what that top value is, that is where you have the most intrinsic, intrinsic drive, spontaneous actions to fulfill. And as you go down the list of values, you require external motivation, rewards and punishment to get them to do it. Just like a, a young boy who loves video games, he spontaneously gets up and does his video games. He doesn't have to be reminded by his mom, Johnny, I told you to do your video game. Doesn't know that. But to do his chores, homework, 
homework to clean his room. They now need to say, if you don't do the cleaning up, you can't play the video game. And then once you do, you can play the video game. They use external motivation and extrinsic motivation is insignificantly empowering compared to the intrinsic drive. And finding out what the highest value is in the individual is the first step because the teleological purpose of an individual revolves around that. The epistemological area of expertise revolves around that. And the ontological identity of that individual revolves around that. So identifying that is the first step. And I put together a, a, a value determination process, which is free on my website, complimentary for anybody who wants to do it in private to help you determine that. And it's a 13 step, 13 question questionnaire that's eye opening to say the least. And I'll be glad to go through that if you want now. I mean, if, it's, if that'll be a value because it'll help people identify what they value and what, what's important, their purpose line. Because your highest value is what's driving everything. So if the first value determinant, because if you just ask somebody what their values are, I guarantee they're going to they're gonna lie to themselves and you. They don't know. Because I ask people, how many of you want to be financially independent? Everybody puts their hand up. I said, how many of you are? They all put their hands down. So I'm not interested in what you say. I'm interested in what your life demonstrates. Your values are revealed through what your life demonstrates, not what you say. And people confuse that because they all say they want to be financially independent, but then they keep buying consumables that they go down in value instead of buying assets that make them financially independent. So the first thing is space. We all have proxemic space, intimate space, which is a foot and a half or within personal or individual space, which is four foot to a foot and a half, social space, which is about four feet to about 10, 12 feet, and then public space, which is anything beyond 10, 12 feet. So we have literally distal or proximal. Things that are really valuable to it, we keep close to us. Things that are not valuable, we get rid of. So the first indicator of what's valuable to us is what is most proximal. What do we fill our most intimate and personal space with most consistently that we engage in, we interact with, what we have in our, within reach of us. Now, in my case, I'm within 18 inches of my computer, but about 16, 17, 18 hours a day. So I'm teaching and researching every day. That's my highest value. And so my computer is really valuable to me because it allows me to teach and research around the world. So you look at what is the items or the objects that you keep in your most intimate space within reach of you most consistently and that you engage in with some sort of motor activity and sensory awareness on a consistent full-time basis and identify those three items. And that tells you something about what you're valuing. And my case, the computer is number one, the cell phone's number two for research. And three is I have books underneath my computer, which is an encyclopedia set. Whenever I get a little break from the computer, just to help my eyes, I pull out the book and I read from the book, the encyclopedia, at least a few pages, and I put the book back. So I'm constantly feeding my mind on the greatest ideas from the greatest minds I could get my hands on. So the first thing is space. The second thing is time. You find time, make time, spend time on things that are valuable to you. You run out of time, don't want to spend time and come up with excuses why you can't do it, don't have the time for, for things that aren't. So you look at what you spend your time on and how you spend your time. Now, I'm about to start a seven-day program that goes from eight in the morning to 10 o'clock at night for 98 hours tomorrow. And I'm, and I'm teaching today. I've got five podcasts today and I've got a, a, a consult today and one webinar. So I'm literally on my computer and teaching or researching. If I'm not teaching, I'm researching every day, seven days a week I'm doing that. And some people think, well, I would never want a life like that. Well, they have a different set of values. That's my values. I was told I would never be able to do that. I now failed. I could. I love doing it. So you look at what you spend your time on and what are you doing most spontaneously? Not because of outside forces, but spontaneously. What do you spontaneously spend your time on? And there will be a pattern in space and time. I guarantee I've been doing this hundreds of thousands of people and I guarantee there'll be a pattern already emerging. You know, I spend my time teaching and researching. My space is for the sake of teaching and researching. The third one is energy. When you're doing something that's very, very high on your value, your energy goes up. When you're doing something that's low on your value, your energy is drained. So you have more energy at the end of your, I'm sure you have more energy at the end of your podcast than when you even start sometimes. You're energized because amazing guests. 
podcast. You have great conversations. You're inspired because it's a topic you love. You want to get that message. So you look at what energizes you most and whatever energizes you most and you always have energy for and you literally grow energy doing it. I want to know what the top three ones of those are. What are the top three things you do? And you can guess mine already. Teaching, researching. I'll do it. I sometimes forget time. I go, oh my God, it's three in the morning. It's time for me. And I guess I, guess I better delegate resting. Give it, find somebody to rest for me because I don't want, I, I'm too engaged in studying right now. The fourth one is money. You find money, spend money, make money for things that are valuable to you, but you don't want to spend money on things that aren't. You go shopping and your spouse has a different set of values and you think, well, she's wasting money on that stuff. I can't believe that. But whatever you want to buy is not wasting money, but she thinks what you're wasting money on because you have different sets of values. But what do you spend your money on? The hierarchy of your values dictates your financial destiny and tells you where your money is going. So if I look at what mine is, mine goes back into the investment of teaching institute. It goes into investing for the sake of having longevity for the institute. And it is involved in gathering research and traveling. So my life demonstrates what it is that's valuable to me in money expense. I don't go fancy socializing. I don't do, you know, other things. I, that's, I stick to what my money goes to. The fifth one is where do you have the most degree, highest degree of order and organization? And many people, because they're the fish comparing themselves to a cat or a cat comparing themselves to a fish, think, well, I'm not organized. I'm a mess. I'm disorganized. They're not looking at where they are organized. They may be credibly organized in their social calendar or their fitness routine or the way they've got their beauty and looks and their clothes arrangements. My case, I'm extremely organized with knowledge and research, travel and investment. That's basically me. Okay. So you look at where you're most organized and ordered and it tells you what you value most because you put things into order. Whenever you're living by your highest values, your life comes into order. That's why if you don't fill your day with high priority actions, it fills up a low priority distraction, which get chaos. But when you end up focusing on what's priority, your life comes into order. You become masterful. The next one, number six is what is it that you're most disciplined, reliable, and focused on? What is it that nobody has to remind you to do that you just spontaneously do that you don't need any external motivation or incentives to do? And what do you discipline on? People can rely on you to do it. You can count on me to be teaching. If I'm not teaching, you count on me to be researching and you count on me traveling. I put in literally over 20 million miles on flights and I live on a ship that goes around the world full time. And so the ship has basically gone a million miles. So I've gone a million sailing around the world. So if you look very carefully, my life demonstrates that travel is also an important part of my life. So you look at what it is you're disciplined to do that nobody has to remind you to do. And that is, and you will see a pattern repeated all the way through. I've done this, like I said, hundreds of thousands of times. And, and I can, when I do this with somebody, I can narrow it down. And that usually brings them tears because whenever they're authentic and they see the clarity of what their authenticity is, they bring tears to their eyes because it's a confirmation of authenticity. The sixth one is what is it you think about, about how you would love your life to be that shows evidence of coming true? What are you thinking about, about how you would love your life to be that shows evidence of coming true? If you're thinking about something, but it's not what you love, that's not it. If you're thinking about something that's not coming true, that's not it. All three of those, what are you thinking about, about how you would love your life to be that is showing evidence coming true? I thought about traveling the world teaching since 17. That's what I would love to see. And that's come true. So I'm looking for the three that are those together. What are you thinking about, about how you would love your life that shows evidence coming true? If there's no evidence, don't write it. If it's not what you want, don't write it. Because some people say, well, I'm thinking about this and I'm, you know, I'm always in anxiety and this is, keeps happening. And I'm not asking for that. I'm asking for what do you think about, about how you would love your life to be 
that shows evidence coming true, which startles people because they go, well, I don't know what that is. They've never stopped and looked. The next one, number seven, or number eight, pardon me, is what specifically are you visualizing about how you would love your life that shows evidence coming true? The thinking is the frontal and parietal area of the brain. The now visualizing and occipital area of the brain. So now you ask, what are you visualizing about how you would love your life to be that shows evidence coming true? What is it that you've seen in your mind's eye that's now become manifested in reality? The next one is, what is your internal dialogue? What are you saying yourself? What are the affirmation quotations and statements that you've internally dialogued yourself with about how you would love your life to be that's also showing evidence coming true? If there's no evidence coming true, that's not it. It's negative self-talk. Negative self-talk is whenever you pursue something that's not highest on your value, you're designed to have that to kick you back into gear towards priority. Then the next one is, what is it you want to externally dialogue with other people about and keep bringing the conversation to? When people come up to you and they'll ask you, well, how's your business or how's your investments or how's your kids or how's your family or how's your health? They'll want to engage in what they want to talk about. What is it you most consistently want to engage and talk about most? Again, this thing will show a perfect pattern through it if you're answering honestly. I've been doing this a long time, since 23, so 45 years. If you go to the next one, what is it that inspires you most? And what is the common denominator to the people inspire you? Most likely, I mean, I don't, we haven't really gotten to have a lot of conversation, but you probably are inspired by people that bring messages to the world that are in a a field of self-mastery or personal development or something, and particularly in leadership and business. You probably just surround yourself with that, read about that, devour that, and absolutely they inspire you. Those people inspire you and you want to do that. And that inspires you to get to do that. So you look carefully at what that is that inspires you, that brings tears to your eyes. I'm sure you have those. And uh, that also you meet people that bring tears to your eyes. You go, wow, that you really inspire me. That's what I'm looking for. And again, you'll see the pattern. You can guess all the great philosophers, all the Nobel Prize winners, all the great leaders that have done amazing, inspiring messages around the world. Man, I just get tears of inspiration studying their lives and biographies and their works. I love standing on their shoulders. And the next one is what are the three most consistent, persistent goals that you've had that you've taken action on and you persevere on and you haven't stopped on that are coming true? The three most significant ones that stand out that your life revolves around. And the last one is what is it you spontaneously want to fill your mind with and learn and study and read and watch on YouTube? What's the common thread to it that's most frequently the one thing you want to feed your mind? And if you look, I guarantee if those answers are honest, they will just point really clearly in a direction of what it is that's important to you. You answer three answers for each of those 13 questions. You have 39 answers in all. And then you look and count up which answers showed up most frequent, second most frequent, and you end up with a hierarchy of values. And I've been doing this a long time. And when you do, you'll look at there and go, my life demonstrates that. And I ask people, how many of you right now feel that your purpose revolves around that top one? And they'll go, everyone will put their hand up. How many of you feel like your identity revolves around that top one? They'll go, wow, yeah. And what is it? You, the area of your expertise, the area that is the one where you'll have most effectancy and efficiency pursuing and where you'll excel and where you won't let yourself down. If you go build a business around that and excel in that, you will not be stopped. You'll be unstoppable because you'll build incremental momentum and achievement. So those are the criteria I use to help people find their purpose in life. That was amazing, John. And I encourage people to do that test on John's website, but also maybe even replay that back listening to the 13. And some key things that I took away there, John, was about really paying attention instead of just going about your life. Pay attention and give honest answers. You know, what are you keeping close to yourself? How are you spending your time? Where does your time go? What brings you energy? Where does your money go? Because that's going to tell you like money decisions are are priority based decisions. What is bringing you that discipline, that focus? 
focus that you speak about? What do you envisage? What do you talk about with your friends? What, what can you have a spontaneous talk about? Someone just comes up to you and says, they want to talk about topic X and all of a sudden you come to life because you want to talk about topic X. There's a hint there. Where is the congruence of your goals that seem to actually come true instead of those, the ones that you might say, if someone stands up at a conference and says, yeah, I want to be financially independent, as you said, well, okay, do your actions match that? So we're looking for congruence there. But the key one I'm taking out there is around the word spontaneity. Like what would you catch yourself just doing spontaneously doing because you wanted to do it, not because there was some kind of expectation. And the the part about it being intrinsic, not about, once again, perceived societal expectations can mask what our true interest, intrinsic values and direction and purpose are because we find ourselves doing things because we had a perception of a societal expectation, whether it's our parents, our community, our friends. We find ourselves doing something where later on go, you know what, I actually didn't enjoy that or that didn't sit well with me or it drained my energy. The opposite of what you're talking about with energy, John. We let these societal expectations or perceptions of them, because sometimes they're not even real, but perceptions of societal expectations that become how we live our lives instead of what's really driving us spontaneity. So that's what really drove me with that, John. One of the things that I noticed when people walk in a mall is and they meet somebody they think is more intelligent than them or they're more achieving than them or they're more wealthy than them or they're more stable in a relationship or more have a more of attractive spouse than them or they're more socially savvy or connected than them or they're more physically fit or attractive or more spiritually aware in their mind. The moment they exaggerate somebody else through comparison, the law of contrast, they'll minimize themselves. And the moment they do, they'll inject the values of others into their life that injected value value will become like Freud's super ego and it will then cause you to internally moralize yourself and degrade yourself because you're making a comparison. We're not here to compare ourselves to others. We're here to compare our daily actions to our own highest value. And uh, we're not here to put people on pedestals because if we do, we're going to inject their values and cloud the clarity of our own mission or project our values down on other people by putting them down because that distracts us. Anytime we judge somebody and put them above us or below us, we minimize ourselves or exaggerate ourselves with a dysmorphic response because of the law of consciousness. We lose our authenticity and lose our drive and our own highest value and cloud the clarity of our mission and purpose. And that's when people come to me and say, in my signature program, the Breakthrough Experience, I don't know what my purpose is because they're clouded by all of the subordinations and subordinations that distract from their authentic self. Yeah, really powerful, John. So yeah, are we letting those extrinsic things get into our life or are we living a life that's congruent with our deepest values and purpose? And we need to take that time to look at these indicators that John is talking about and you will find it. You will find your values, you will find your purpose, but you need to be paying attention. And it's the spontaneous things, the intrinsic things, not the external ones that we're interested in here. You did speak about vision and you spoke about what you envisage that seems to come true. So this gets us into this term manifestation, which is often misunderstood, I have to say, John. And I'm going to do the extreme one. And, you know, when the secret come out, which you're heavily involved in, this was one of the things that people spoke about. They spoke about, oh, I'm going to have a vision of a million dollar check appearing in my letterbox. And I'm going to dream about that until it happens. And of course, it never happens, right? So that's where some of the kind of misperceptions and, and all misconceptions come with all of this. Tell us about how vision, like the getting to know your values and purpose and that vision, how it turns into action and then turns into reality. Talk us through that. 
Yeah, I had a, you said it right on the money there. I had a, a lovely girl come up to me, probably 2008, within a year or two of The Secret coming out. And she says, Dr. Martini, I've watched the movie 20 times. I've read the book six times. And every day I go out into my mailbox and I still don't get a million dollar check. What am I doing wrong? What step am I missing? <laughs> I said, have you considered going and doing a service for somebody that actually makes it valuable enough for people to pay you and then take a portion of that and invest it? Because that's really practical stuff that's needed. And she goes, uh, no. I thought, well, then don't expect a mailbox unless you got an uncle or an aunt that's about to die or something and or you've done something extraordinary to inspire somebody who's wealthy to give you some money. It's not likely. You deal with probabilities. So I always tell them the secret behind the secret left out of the secret is don't waste your time on something that's not truly integral to what you value most in the pursuit. And don't set up fantasies. A fantasy comes in two basic forms. A fantasy of getting a one-sided world. It's like being in a relationship. If I walk up to a beautiful girl and I said, look, my expectation on you is to be nice, never mean, kind, never cruel, positive, never negative, peaceful, never wrathful, giving, never taking, generous, never stingy, you know, considerate, never inconsiderate, and be, you know, rewarding without risk. That's a bit of a delusion. You're expecting a one-sided world. Life has two sides like a magnet. So if you expect a one-sided world, which the amygdala does because it wants to avoid predator and seek prey and avoid challenge and seek support and becomes dependent on it, like dependencies and drugs. If you want a one-sided world, you're going to have a fantasy and you're going to create a nightmare out of your life in, in the pursuit of it because the nightmare is coming in to break your addiction to the fantasy to put you in truth and in pursuit of a real objective. An objective is neutral and balanced and is embracing both sides of life and the pursuit of. If I say to you, sometimes you're nice, sometimes you're mean, sometimes you're kind, sometimes you're cruel, the individual will say, yes, that's true. If I embrace you for both sides, a balanced orientation, I now have a real objective. So pursuing a real objective and not a fantasy and pursuing something that is truly meaningful, that is truly high on your value, that you intrinsically have a yearning to want to go and spontaneously act toward, and you act on doing high priority actions that strategically give you the probability of getting an outcome. You have the right, if you're patient and perseverant enough, to get there. I had a dream to step foot in every country on the face of the earth to teach since I was 17. I'm in 193 countries. I got about 28 to go. I had a dream to go to and speak and write books around the world. You know, later on at 23, I started writing down. I want to have international best-selling books in 50 languages. I'm at 40 languages now. And I've personalized. So I've, I've been working on that since 23, you know, 45 years. If you're willing to go for something that you're willing to embrace the pains and pleasures in pursuit of it, and it's a true objective and you have a strategy on it, you take daily actions, incremental momentum building actions, you will be unstoppable in the achievement of that. It's just a matter of time. As long as it's not a fantasy, a one-sided outcome that's not obtainable, something that's not really high in your values that you won't persevere on, or something that hasn't been strategically planned. So you have real action steps that lead you to the result. I want to throw some examples at you, John, to try and illustrate what I'm taking away there, right? So there's the congruence with intrinsic values, not someone else's values, but congruence with your own values. And then I'm going to say prolific action, right? So I'm going to talk, some sport examples will be relatively obvious. So I'm going to throw out Michael Jordan, Michael Phelps, and the common factor there is not their first name. It's about how they live their lives. I'm going to throw out Richard Branson as a as a business example. I'm going to throw out this guy called John Martini who had a learn learning difficulty, who then sat down and wrote 20 words a day, first of all, and then that increased every day for many years until he overcome his learning difficulties. And he's now talking on stages around the world. The common factors there are congruence with values, values that meant something to themselves, and then prolific action. Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods practiced and practiced more than anyone else. Yes, he was the number one golfer of his era and arguably the number one ever. There's a few others that probably have some claims there, but what did all 
all of those have in common prolific action. Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, they practice harder and longer than any of their peers, even though they were already at the top of their game once they got there. Michael Jordan was dropped from his college basketball team at one point, but congruence with his intrinsic values coupled with prolific action is what got through. And one of the things that got him through that, and one of the things that popped into my mind when I was thinking about that, I was thinking about child prodigies who quite often, not always, they can burn out and actually not get there. And that might have been because they were actually living someone else's dream. Sometimes a parent will force them to do something over and over again instead of their own drive. You know, I I set out to read and learn to read. I'm now at 30,000, nearly 800 books, and I keep a record up. And uh, I also teach a program called The Breakthrough Experience that you may have heard about. I don't know. I've done it 1,181 times. So I just keep doing it. Just keep doing it. Just keep, you learn to play the flute by playing the flute. You just play the flute. Just keep mastering it. I was with recently with one of the leading pianists in the world. He's 80 years old. He started three. He was nine years old. He was a concert pianist traveling around the world at nine. He's 80 now. I was just with him on my ship recently. And he said that his average day was 13 hours a day preparing. So you should do that seven days a week. That's about a hundred hours a week working on a piano. All right. So finding that thing that truly inspires you, that inspired, meaningful mission, finding something that inspires you because you want to do it, this, this spontaneous action of things that you will do, not because someone told you to do it, because you would have done it anyway, finding that congruence as to what were the values that led you there and then the prolific action. And this is what we, we end up with a manifested life, life mastery, and the ability to become the top of your game. They're my takeaways. When you can't wait to get up in the morning and do your service, people can't wait to get it. And I I love the example that you gave before, and I reversed it in my mind, by the way. I was thinking about a parent saying, you can't eat your broccoli until you've finished your video game. Off you go, right? So yeah, it's a perfect example, right? So are you being forced to do it or are you doing it spontaneously because it really inspires you? I just love it, John. And then putting in that action and making sure, can I add this now? Now we've got to make sure that we're not distracted by those things that are incongruent with our values. So now I'm thinking about, it's not just the decision of what we do. It's the decisions of what we say no to. How important is that in the manifestation journey? That's a major one, you know, but the thing is, if it, there's a basic principle, it is a Parkinson's law that the work tends to expand, the, fill the time that's allotted. But it, we could reverse that and say that if you don't fill your day with high priority actions that inspire you, your day is going to fill up with low priority distractions that don't. If you don't put your money into asset accumulation, you will have unexpected bills erode the potential to build wealth. The same law of neg entropy versus entropy, tendency to bring order to the things instead of it going naturally to disorder is a crucial component on mass and manifestation. So if you don't fill your day, your week, your month, your quarter, your year, your decade, your generation, your life with the highest priority actions and plan your life by design, you're going to live by duty. And duty means you're going to deontologically subordinate to outer influences of opportunities that are projected values onto you to get what they want. And if any area of your life you don't empower, people will overpower you. So if you want to really empower your life and want to excel, you want to fill your each hour of your day with how you would love it to be what's really truly priority and then it's easy to say thank you but no thank you to people thank you but no thank you to people that want to take away that and distract most distractions are things you infatuate with or resent as a result of minimizing or exaggerating yourself to others and putting people on pedestals and pits and then labeling them with judgments and distracting your mind because every infatuation and resentment occupies space and time your mind and runs you so learning to be able to do what you love and putting yourself in the executive center which brings more objectivity which 
reduces volatile emotional judgments and subjectivity, maximizes the performance and decreases the probability of distractions. And it makes it easier to say no to opportunists. One of the powerful things you said earlier during your 13 was you hinted towards this one about the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves, right? And if we are crafting our own story about the life we want to create, about the person we want to be, about how we want to see ourselves in the world, we can then at these decision points of what are we going to say yes to, what are we going to say no to? One of the exercises could be to go, would the person that I tell myself about myself, would they say yes to that? Or would they say no to that? And will they, at the end of the day, will they regret wasted time that they could have focused their energy on the things that is their inspired mission or will they have their energy drained because they went and did things that others expected of them? Yeah, really powerful, Trump. I'm a firm believer that, again, you have the responsibility because nobody's dedicated their life to your fulfillment. There's no genie out there like the secret put out there. If you don't, and there's nobody, everybody around you is dedicated to the fulfillment of their own values, which is unique. And they're going to project onto you whatever they think will get them with their values to be fulfilled. So if you are not able to say thank you, but no thank you, and there's diplomatic ways of saying it, thank you, no thank you. I don't feel that I could give it my all and I don't want to give you anything less than my all. So I'm going to have to say no because because I really, really, really have a very prioritized agenda that I want to fulfill right now. And I don't want you to get second class me. So I just, you just stay it in a way where they went out of it. And when people value your time, they'll go out of the way and make, bring something of value to you to make sure they get the time. Because a lot of people just consume your time otherwise. And I, I remember this one guy called me one time. He heard I was coming into Houston, Texas, where I, where my, one of my offices is. And I was there literally for 17 hours and out. So I was just popping in and he heard I was coming. So he said, oh, I want to take you to, to lunch. So he sends me this email. I said, I have, you're number 14 on the list that I've said no to, but here's what I'll do because I have a very short period of time there. I've got one and a half hours. If I say yes to all 14 of you and we meet all at this restaurant, I can have a dinner and enjoy all 14 of you, but I can't decide if I have to say one to yes to one and not to the others, it's not fair. So I'm going to say no to all of them. But if you would like to do that, we meet at this location and I took command of where I wanted to eat. And I sent out a notice that said, if you would like to join it, I'm going to make it available for all the people that, that want to meet because I can't do it one at a time. Well, 11 of the 14 people showed up there. I had a fantastic thing. We got a great picture done. I was in and out efficiently and I got to say hi to the people that wanted to do it. And I also gave them a response. But if I was to try to do everything that people want me to do, I'd never get anything done. That's it. It'd just be a time sponge. Yeah. All right. Very good. All right. So now let's bring that to team. So we've spoken a lot about personal manifestation now, about understanding our values, about where we spend our focus, about prolific action around those values about what we say yes to or what we about what we say no to. The majority of people that listen to this show, John, are leading teams and they're leading teams that they want to be high performance teams. How do we bring this manifestation concept into a group environment? Uh, I love that. Okay, here we go. Every human being lives by a set of priorities, their own unique values. So that team may be 10, 20, 50, 100, however many people in there, 1,000, but every individual still has a unique set of values. And nobody goes to work for an organization or company. They go to to fulfill the company. They go there to fulfill their values. And if they can fulfill their values, they're engaged and they do great work. They feel it's, they feel ownership. Whatever's highest on your value is more intrinsic and you feel it's yours. So if you're doing what you're really led to do, you feel you're, the company you work 
for is kind of like your company. It's not that company you work for in third person, it's first person. So the first thing to do is to honor the team by caring enough about the team members to identify what they value and master the skill of communicating what you would love to see manifest in terms of their unique values. If you do and you show respect, you have a higher probability of sustainable fair exchange with them and they feel like they want to contribute to you as much as you feel there, they feel you're contributing to them. So caring enough to do that and helping them make the link between what you're asking and their highest values. So if I ask somebody, I, I take people who are disengaged at work and they're about to be fired. And I tell this to the boss, I said, I can fire them up or you can fire them out. What would you prefer? Well, it'd be better to fire them up if you get them functioning. I can get them functioning. I get them to produce. You can do that. I go, yeah. And what I do is I take the same job description, break it down into incremental actions, and then find the link and show them the link between those actions and what they actually intrinsically value. And once they can see things on the way, not in the way, they become re-engaged at work. I guarantee I've been doing that and I bet money and, and one every time because it's knowing how to ask quality questions. A quality of life space is the quality of the questions we ask. If we ask questions, how is doing the job that I'm doing helping me fulfill what's most meaningful? If I don't see it, I'm disengaged and I hate my job and I want out and I want to live for a break and live for a vacation and live for a retirement. And I have Monday morning blues and Wednesday hump days and thank God it's Fridays and week friggin' ends. But the second I can see how it's helping me get what I want, I'm going to work because I'm getting what I want, not because I've got a job and I've got a duty. I'm living now by design. So caring enough to help them see that so they're fully engaged towards the objective, taking the primary objective and mission and vision of the company and finding out how that is helping them fulfill their individual value and taking the time to do that is goldmine. You automatically build a team by doing it because people want to fulfill their values. And if they see that being with that team is helping them fulfill their values, they automatically ready for the team. If not, they're going to go into their amygdala. They're going to be unfulfilled. They're going to want to project their values onto other people. They're going to want to live in fantasies or one-sided outcomes of pleasure without pain because the amygdala is that way. And you're automatically going to get crack clash and clicks and distractions inside that group. So caring enough about another individual because their identity revolves around it. They want to be loved for their highest value. Care enough to find out what that is, to communicate the job description tournament, the mission and vision of the company in terms of that. And if you do, you become not an autocratic leader with forcing and punishing and rewarding. You do it because now you got an inspiring team and you have less need for control because they have more engagement in their fulfillment. So there's a few takeaways I'm taking from that, John. The first one is a bit of a personal accountability. So this is a, a bit of a call to action for people listening to the show. And you might have heard John talk about the 13 drivers that he was talking about before. And he's thinking about, you probably you may even be thinking there, scratching your head going, I wonder if I should change jobs. I should change careers. I should change something. And the first call to action, I think, would be look where you are first and see how your values and your purpose can show up in the environment that you're already in. Before you throw in the towel, job today, think about how you could manifest your values and your vision and your purpose in the very place that you're already working. And if you look closely, you might be able to see that. And then the second one is the leadership accountability to help people join the dots because they may not be able to see it themselves. It's very hard to read the label on the jar from inside the jar. So you might need someone to look from the outside and ask the right questions, like you said, John, to help you go on that journey of discovery of, ah, okay, this is what I value. This is, ah, and it can show up here. 
here. I can matter. I can matter here and it can be congruent with my personal values and I can do my very best work. And oh, and look at that. It also contributes to the the vision and the purpose of the team. And now we start getting collective purpose and collective purpose is very powerful. If you get everyone rowing in the same direction, albeit with their own intrinsic values as to why they're in the boat in the first place. But if everyone starts rowing in the same direction, you can be prolific as a team and you can collectively be better together. And all of a sudden you've got, you might have eight rowers in a boat all on their own personal journey, but all heading in the same general direction, getting personal satisfaction of the journey at the same time as some kind of collective purpose is being generated. Because, you know, we're all gifted, John, 24 hours in a day. No one can break that law. But when we work together with like-minded people at where our values and purpose can coincide, then we can do amazing things together. That, that were my takeaways when I was listening to you there. Any thoughts on that? You said it perfectly. I always tell people either go what you go and do what you love through delegating or love what you do through linking. One is taking command of your motor actions, which is prioritizing your motor actions. And the other one is to linking and prioritizing your sensory perceptions. We have control over our perceptions, decisions, and actions. If we don't prioritize our actions, we're going to end up having to prioritize our perceptions. If we prioritize our actions, the more we do and the more we delegate, the less we have distractions because we're doing what we love and that's all our responsibility is. See, I only teach, research, write, and travel. Everything else is delegated. I haven't driven a car in 33 years. I haven't cooked since I was 24. Everything else, I've got a person that changed clocks when I travel on my ship. I have somebody that's a cook. I got a concierge. I've got a person who's a pilot. I've got somebody who's the person who's the ship captain. Everything is done on extrinsic. And I found that that's extrinsic out there by other people. I don't want to fill my day that devalues me with things that are low in my values. And many people who are entrepreneurs, they think, well, I'm burning out in my work. No, they're not doing the highest priority things of the work that they love doing. And they haven't delegated somebody and they're trapped in the time trap. And if you take that, I had a guy just the other day in my Razor Experience program who's in Australia. He says, I'm getting, I, I really love my job, but it's starting to get to me. I said, no, you love the consulting. You love the interaction. And what you're doing is administrative stuff. And that's what you don't want to do. He goes, he literally got a tear in his eye. He goes, I can't believe I couldn't see that. I said, let's get somebody to do that part and get on with doing it. You'll make more income. You can pay this guy a hundred bucks an hour. You can make thousands an hour. Why be doing a hundred dollar an hour job and devalue yourself and then run yourself down in energy? Get on with what's priority. Go close deals. Go do the cl- the consulting and get somebody to do administration and manage people and all those other things. I don't do that. I haven't done that in 40 years. I've hired people who are specialists to do that. And here's the thing about those specialists, I think, John, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. If you look in the right way and you find the right people and surround yourself with those people, there's a chance that that very thing that drains your energy is the thing that brings them energy. So if you find the right person who loves to do those spreadsheets that you hate, and that is something that brings them energy, well, now you're a match made in heaven, aren't you? Because you get to focus on what you love. You can't, you know, that's, this is why I use the value determination process. I've got thousands of companies and people in governments and all kinds of people using it because they don't ever want to hire any human being without knowing what their intrinsic values are. But if you hire somebody, as Peter Drucker said, if you hire somebody and they don't work out, it's not them. You hired them. You hired somebody that you didn't go and check to see that the job duties they have are connected to their intrinsic value. If they do, you don't have to micromanage them. You don't have to push them uphill. You don't need incentives. You lower the cost. So, 
I have a whole screening process before we ever hire. I can tell if they're going to be engaged at work before they even hire them, just by taking the job description and seeing how fluent and congruent it is the way they answer. If I ask them, how is doing this going to help you fulfill your highest value? If they have to go, don't hire them. If they can go, yeah, yeah, I can see this. This is what I've always wanted to do. And they're engaged and they can't fake that. They don't know that's coming out to them when they're about to have that happen. That's not something prepared for in an interview. When all of a sudden you ask them, how is doing this particular job item helping you fulfill what you value most? If they can see it in their mind's eye and it's congruent and it's aligned, they can rattle off fluently without a hesitation, not a, not even a one second delay in the answer. But if they can't, they're going to pause. They're going to, their eyes are going to roll around looking for a connection. You can tell in advance whether or not somebody's going to be ready to do the job and you can release it and get on with what you do that's inspiring to you and let them do what's inspiring to them. You can do that in advance. I guarantee that's screenable. One of the things that can sometimes get thrown at a problem like this, John, is about, yeah, but if if everyone lived their life like that, we'd never have janitors. But I'm going to throw a story at you that came from one of our previous guests, John. I'd love to hear your reaction to this. It comes from Zach Mercurio, the author of the book, The Invisible Leader, and he studies purpose very deeply. And in his university, he was doing exactly that. He was studying purpose and he got interviewing all people across the campus from professors, deans, etc., all the way through to the janitor. And this one janitor that he interviewed asking about her purpose and why she does what she does, she didn't say, I clean toilets, I, you know, clean up the dishes or anything like this. She said, I exist, or she didn't use these exact words, but my purpose is to ensure that the that students at this school don't get sick so they can finish their studies and go on and change the world. And this janitor is the type of janitor that's out there doing their job and whistling and singing songs, etc., because they feel like what they do has some kind of meaning. Yes, meaning. Okay, you just brought up a story that I must share now. Five days ago, the gentleman who took my father's plumbing company, because he had a plumbing company, I think he wanted me to be the plumber. I told him I'm not doing that. That's not my highest value. But the gentleman who took it over, Randy, contacted me and asked if I would want the nameplate of my father that's been sitting on the desk for the last 40-something years. And I said, I would love that. So we started chatting. I said, who's still working there? He said, Donnie. I said, is that Jesse's son? He goes, yes. Wow. Now I'm leading up to something. My dad, when I was about teenager, after I came back home, I was about 18, 19. My dad, no, 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 pardon me. I was younger. When I was even younger that, when I, before I left home, my dad asked me to go work with Jesse, the ditch digger. And I said, why am I going to go with the ditch digger today? And he says, because he has something to teach you. Well, I want to go with the plumber. He says, no, you need to go with the ditch digger today because he has something to teach you today. I went, okay. So we go out and I'm in this truck and we're driving with Jesse. He had an eighth grade education. He had eight children. He's a really lovely guy. We went out to the this yard that had been 30 years old and needed new water main brought to it. So there's a main, the main at the front by the sidewalk, and there's a main entrance into the house. And we had to put a new pipe in there. So we went out there and he put a stick with a string between two sides. So we had a straight line. He then took a T-bar and went poking down in the ground to see how moist or rocky or, you know, what's the, where we're going to dig the ditch. He then watered it. So it had enough moisture to make a, a nice sod to turn. Otherwise it would clump and break up. And then he put newspaper on the side, right on the side of the string. So when we turned to the side, it would go into the newspaper, not have mud everywhere. And then he got a level after we dug and he showed me how to do a, a six inch sod, exactly a six inch sod and turn it over. Six inch sod, turn it over. Six inch sod. He was teaching me how to do the work actually. <laughs> and I dug this ditch. It was about a 40 foot ditch and it was about a foot deep, not even not quite a foot deep. And we turned the sod over. We laid the pipe with a, with a level to make sure there's no dips in it because then we water erodes it and it rusts quicker. And we had a perfectly graded system. We then 
then put the dirt sod back over it perfectly, patted it, watered it, ruffled the grass. You could not tell that anybody was there, but there was a new entrance and new water main. You couldn't see the water main. You couldn't see the entrance. It was perfectly new. And we then finished. There was no mud. There was no, it was just flawlessly done. It was amazing. And we got in the truck and we drove off. And this is what he told me. He said, my job is to do such an extraordinary job to bring water, which brings life to people. My job is not digging ditches. I save people's lives without water. They can't function. They can't live and function without water. I have the most important job on the planet. And I bring people water because without it, they die. They don't function. And I, my job is to get them to come home, think that we didn't get there, call and complain to the, the office and have your dad tell them, go back outside and look carefully. And then found out there's no possible way he was here because there's no mud, there's no mess, there's no signs of any ditch, there's nothing. And he says, the pride in the workmanship of what I want to do is I want to make it where they call and complain and then we get to tell them it's done. And then they're humble and they thank your dad. That's his goal. Oh, I love it. That's so beautiful. And it was driven by purpose. It's driven by values. He was driven by purpose. This is an eighth grade educated man that was more purposeful than some of the other plumbers that were working there. There you go. All right. I love it. All right, John. So you and I have gotten into a flow state here. We've been talking for more than an hour and I, I don't think either of us even noticed, but that's the nature of what brings us energy. I've got to, to throw that back to you again. So I'd like to bring us to a, a close now. This is our rapid round. Same four questions that we ask all of our guests. So what's the one thing? thing that you know now that you wish you knew when you were 20? And say that I have a regret thinking that I wish I'd have known something different because that's assuming there was a mistake along the way. I don't believe that there's a mistake along the way. I believe it's all on the way and never in the way. So I don't look back as wish I'd have done this or wish I'd have done that. I wish I'd have done this. I don't really think that way. I'm just grateful for the the journey I've been on. I'm grateful for the people I've met, the places I've gone, the books I've gotten to read, the people I've gotten to speak to. I don't look back and go regret on anything. I don't find that being productive. All right. Brilliant. What's your favorite book? You're an author of more than 40 books yourself, but what's your favorite book? You've read more books than I think most humans. People ask me, what books would I recommend? I tell them to get Syntopican Volumes 1 and 2 by Mortimer Adler. Syntopican Volumes 1 and 2 by Mortimer Adler, put by the great books of the Western world, the great ideas by Britannica. And it's the two synthetic and synthetic integrative portions of the books before the great ideas by the greatest minds who've lived in the last 2,700 years. It's the greatest ideas on the greatest topics by the greatest minds in the Western world over the last 2,700 years. To me, it's a PhD on mastery of life. All right. I'm definitely going to look on that. I, I do not know it. I'll definitely look into that and we'll put that in the show notes for sure. What's your favorite quote? I think that no matter what you've done or not done, you're worthy of love. Stop judging yourself relative to others' values. Stop judging others relative to your values and start realizing that nothing's in the way. It's all on the way. It's all part of a bigger cause and purpose to help you do something amazing with your life. See life through those eyes and you can't see anything but momentum building opportunities. Yeah, really beautiful, Trump. Thank you for sharing that. And finally, there's going to be people in the audience that their mind has been expanded by this discussion without any doubt. How do they find you and what are the best resources to take the tests and to take your programs, et cetera, to learn more? Well, if they would like to go on that, just go to drdmartini.com, D-R-D-Martini, D-E-M-A-R-T-I-N-I.com. And there you have the Demartini Show, which is my podcast. And you also have the value determination process where it's free, it's private, it's complimentary. You can just go on there and take your time on it and store it and look at it again. If you do it again every few months, just as your life's evolving. And there's also just an, a vast amount of interviews on there. There's thousands of interviews on there that I've been blessed to do. And so it's an educational website. It's not just a marketing website. It's an educational website. 
That's absolutely wonderful, John. And we will put the links in the show notes for sure so people can find it nice and easy. And I encourage you to go and look. There's absolutely amazing resources there. Thank you so much for the gift of your time today. This has been a wonderful moment for me personally. You are a person that inspires me. You asked that question before about people that inspire you that bring a tear to your eyes. You are that for me. And it's been a true honor and pleasure for me to have you on the show today. And I know our audience are going to be challenged in their thinking today to really stop and think and reflect about their own personal values and whether they're living lives that are congruent with those values. What are they saying yes to? What are they saying no to? Think about those spontaneous things that you just do, that no one forces you to do. No one even asks you to do it. You just find yourself doing it and you will find your personal values and purpose at the end of that road. So thank you so much, John. This has been a true moment for me. Thank you. No, thank you. I can say the same thing. Your articulation, your summaries, and your understanding of all the principles are enlightening. So thank you very much for that. I appreciate being on your show. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Leadership Project at mixbeers.com. A huge call out to Faris Sadek for his video editing of all of our video content and to all of the team at TLP. Joanne goes on, Gerald Calibo, and my amazing wife, Say Spears. I could not do this show without you. Don't forget to subscribe to the Leadership Project YouTube channel where we bring you interesting videos each and every week. And you can follow us on social, particularly on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Now, in the meantime, please do take care, look out for each other, and join us on this journey as we learn together and lead together.